Chapter 21 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 21 Influences that Affect the Natural Ability of Nations. Before speaking of the influences which affect the natural ability and intelligence of nations and races, I must beg the reader to bring distinctly before his mind how reasonable it is that such influences should be expected to exist, how consonant it is to all analogy and experience to expect that the control of the nature of future generations should be as much within the power of the living as the health and well-being of the individual is in the power of the guardians of his youth. We are exceedingly ignorant of the reasons why we exist confident only that individual life is a portion of some vaster system that struggles arduously onwards towards ends that are dimly seen or wholly unknown to us by means of the various affinities the sentiments the intelligences the tastes the appetites of innumerable personalities who ceaselessly succeed one another on the stage of existence there is nothing that appears to assign a more exceptional or sacred character to a race than the families or individuals that compose it we know how careless nature is of the lives of individuals we have seen how careless she is of eminent families how they are built up flourish and decay just the same may be said of races and of the world itself also by analogy of other scenes of existence than this particular planet of one of innumerable suns our world appears hitherto to have developed itself mainly under the influence of unreasoning affinities but of late man slowly growing to be intelligent humane and capable has appeared on the scene of life and profoundly modified its conditions he has already become able to look after his own interests in an incomparably more far-sighted manner than in the old prehistoric days of barbarism and flint knives he is already able to act on the experiences of the past to combine closely with distant allies and to prepare for future wants known only through the intelligence long before their pressure has become felt he has introduced a vast deal of civilization and hygiene which influence to an immense degree his own well-being and that of his children it remains for him to bring other policies into action that shall tell of the natural gifts of his race it would be writing to no practically useful purpose were i to discuss the effect that might be produced on the population by such social arrangements as existed in sparta they are so alien and repulsive to modern feelings that it is useless to say anything about them so I shall wholly confine my remarks to agencies that are actually at work, and upon which there can be no hesitation in speaking. I shall have occasion to show that certain influences retard the average age of marriage, while others hasten it, and the general character of my argument will be to prove that an enormous effect upon the average natural ability of a race may be produced by means of those influences. I shall argue that the wisest policy is that which results in retarding the average age of marriage among the weak, and in hastening it among the vigorous classes whereas most unhappily for us the influence of numerous social agencies has been strongly and painfully exerted in the precisely opposite direction an estimate of the effect of the average age of marriage on the growth of any section of a nation is therefore the first subject that requires investigation everybody is prepared to admit that it is an element sure to produce some sensible effect but few will anticipate its real magnitude or will be disposed to believe that its results have so vast and irresistible an influence on the natural ability of a race that i shall be able to demonstrate the average age of marriage affects population in a threefold manner firstly those who marry when young have the larger families secondly they produce more generations within a given period and therefore 
the growth of a prolific race, progressing as it does, geometrically, would be vastly increased at the end of a long period by a habit of early marriages, and thirdly, more generations are alive at the same time among those races who marry when they are young. In explanation of the aggregate effects of these three influences, it will be best to take two examples that are widely but not extremely separated. Suppose two men, M and N, about 22 years old, each of them having, therefore, the expectation of living to the age of 55 or 33 years longer, and suppose that M marries at once, and that his descendants, when they arrive at the same age, do the same, but that N delays until he has laid by money, and does not marry before he is 33 years old, that is to say, 11 years later than M, and his descendants also follow his example. Let us further make the two very moderate suppositions that the early marriages of race M result in an increase of 1.5 the next generation, and also in the production of 3.75 generations in a century, while the late marriages of the race N result in an increase of only 1.25 the next generation, and in 2.5 generations in one century. It will be found that an increase of 1.5 in each generation, accumulating on the principle of compound interest during 3.75 generations, becomes rather more than 18 over four times the original amount, while an increase of 1.25 for 2.5 generations is barely as much as 7 over four times the original amount. Consequently, the increase of the race of M at the end of a century will be greater than that of N in the ratio of 18 to 7. That is to say, it will be rather more than 2.5 times as great. In two centuries, the progeny of M will be more than 6 times, and in three centuries, more than 15 times as numerous as those of N. The proportion which the progeny of M will bear at any time to the total living population will be still greater than this, owing to the number of generations of M who are alive at the same time being greater than those of N. The reader will not find any difficulty in estimating the effect of these conditions. If he begins by ignoring children and all others below the age of 22, and also by supposing the population to be stationary in its number in consecutive generations, we have agreed in the case of M to allow 3.75 generations to one century, which gives about 27 years to each generation. Then when one of this race is 22 years old, his father will, on the average in many cases, be 27 years older, or 49 and as a father lives to 55, he will survive the advent of his son to manhood for the space of six years. Consequently, during the 27 years intervening between each two generations, there will be found one mature life for the whole period and one other mature life during a period of six years, which gives for the total mature life of the race M a number which may be expressed by the fraction 6 plus 27 over 27 or 33 over 27. The diagram represents the course of three consecutive generations of race M. The middle line refers to that of the individual about whom I have just been speaking, the upper one to that of his father, and the lower to his son. The dotted line indicates the period of life before the age of 22. The double line, the period between 22 and the average time at which his son is born. The dark line is the remainder of his life. A graph is displayed on the page. A term of 27 years between two generations. On the other hand, a man of the race N, which does not contribute more than 2.5 generations to a century, that is to say, 40 years to a single generation, does not attain the age of 22 until, on the average of many cases, 7 years after his father's death. For the father was 40 years old when his son was born, and died at the age of 55, when the son was only 15 years old. 
In other words, during each period of 18 plus 15 plus 7 or 40 years, men of matured life for the rates N are alive for only 18 plus 15 or 33 of them. Hence, the total matured life for the rates N may be expressed by the fraction 33 over 40. A graph is displayed on the page, a term of 40 years between two generations. It follows that the relative population due to the races of M and N is as 33 over 27 to 33 over 40, or as 40 to 27, which is very nearly as 5 to 3. We have been calculating on the supposition that the population remains stationary because it was more convenient to do so, but the results of our calculation will hold nearly true for all cases, because if population should increase, the larger number of living descendants tends to counterbalance the diminished number of living ancestry, and conversely, if it decreases. Combining the above ratio of 5 to 3 with those previously obtained, it results that at the end of one century from the time when the races M and N started fair with equal numbers, the proportion of mature men of race M will be four times as numerous as those of race N at the end of two centuries. They will be ten times as numerous, and at the end of three centuries, no less than twenty-six times as numerous. I trust the reader will realise the heavy doom which these figures pronounce against all subsections of prolific races in which there is the custom to put off the period of marriage until middle age. It is a maxim of Malthus that the period of marriage ought to be delayed in order that the earth may not be overcrowded by a population for whom there is no place at the great table of nature. If this doctrine influenced all classes alike, I should have nothing to say about it here, one way or another, for it would hardly affect the discussions in this book. But, as it is put forward as a rule of conduct for the prudent part of mankind to follow, whilst the imprudent are necessarily left free to disregard it, I have no hesitation in saying that it is a most pernicious rule of conduct in its bearing upon race. Its effect would be such as to cause the race of the prudent to fall, after a few centuries, into an almost incredible inferiority of numbers to that of the imprudent, that it is therefore calculated to bring utter ruin upon the breed of any country where the doctrine prevailed. I protest against the abler races being encouraged to do withdraw in this way from the struggle for existence. It may seem monstrous that the weak should be crowded out by the strong, but it is still more monstrous that the races best fitted to play their part on the stage of life should be crowded out by the incompetent, the ailing, and the desponding. The time may hereafter arrive in far distant years, when the population of the earth shall be kept as strictly within the bounds of number and suitability of race. As a sheep on a well-ordered moor, or the planets in an orchard house, in the meantime, let us do what we can to encourage the manipulation of the races best fitted to invent and conform to a high and generous civilization, and not, out of a mistaken instinct of giving support to the weak, prevent the incoming of strong and hearty individuals. The long period of the Dark Ages, under which Europe has lain, is due, I believe, in a very considerable degree, to the celibacy enjoined by religious orders on their votaries. Whenever a man or woman was possessed of a gentle nature that fitted him or her to deeds of charity, to meditation, to literature, or to art, the social condition of the time was such that they had no refuge elsewhere than in the bosom of the church. But the church chose to preach an exact celibacy. The consequence was that these gentle natures had no continuance, and thus, by policies so singularly unwise and suicidal, that I am hardly able to speak of it without impatience. The church brutalized the breed of our forefathers. 
she acted precisely as if she had aimed at selecting the rudest portion of the community to be alone the parents of future generations she practised the arts which breeders would use who aimed at creating ferocious currish and stupid natures no wonder that sub-law prevailed for centuries over europe the wonder rather is that enough good remained in the veins of europeans to enable their race to rise to its present very moderate level of natural morality a relic of this monastic spirit clings to our universities who say to every man who shows intellectual powers of the kind they delight to honour here is an income of from one to two hundred pounds a year with free lodging and various advantages in the way of board and society we give it you on account of your ability take it and enjoy it all your life if you like we exact no condition on your continuing to hold it but one namely that you shall not marry the policy of the religious world in europe was exerted in another direction with hardly less cruel effect on the nature of future generations by means of persecutions which brought thousands of the foremost thinkers and men of political aptitudes to the scaffold or imprisoned them during a large part of their manhood or drove them as emigrants into other lands in every one of these cases the check upon their leaving issue was very considerable hence the church having first captured all the gentle natures and condemned them to celibacy made another sweep of her huge nets this time fishing in stirring waters to catch those who were the most fearless truth-seeking and intelligent in their modes of thought and therefore the most suitable parents of a high civilization and put a strong check if not a direct stop to their progeny those she reserved on these occasions to breed the generations of the future were the servile the indifferent and again the stupid thus as she to repeat my expression brutalized human nature by her system of celibacy applied to the gentle she demoralized it by her system of persecution of the intelligent the sincere and the free it is enough to make the blood boil to think of the blind folly that has caused the foremost nations of struggling humanity to be the heirs of such hateful ancestry and that has so bred our instincts as to keep them in an unnecessarily long-continued antagonism with the essential requirements of a steadily advancing civilization in consequence of this inbred imperfection of our natures in respect to the conditions under which we have to live we are even now almost as much harassed by the sense of moral incapacity and sin as were the early convents from barbarism and we steep ourselves in half-unconscious self-deception and hypocrisy as a partial refuge from its instance our avowed creeds remain at variance with our real rules of conduct and we lead a dual life of barren religious sentimentalism and gross materialistic habitudes the extent to which persecution must have affected european races is easily measured by a few well-known statistical facts thus as regards metrodom and imprisonment the spanish nation was drained of free thinkers at the rate of one thousand persons annually for the three centuries between 1471 and 1781 an average of 100 persons having been executed and 900 imprisoned every year during that period the actual data during those 300 years are 32,000 burnt 17,000 persons burnt in effigy i presume they mostly died in prison or escaped from spain and 291,000 contemned to various terms of imprisonment and other penalties it is impossible that any nation could stand a policy like this without paying a heavy penalty in the deterioration of its breed as has notably been the result in the formation of the superstitious unintelligent spanish race of the present day italy was also frightfully persecuted at an earlier date 
In the diocese of Como alone, more than 1,000 were tried annually by the inquisitors for many years, and 300 were burnt in a single year, 1416. The French persecutions by which the English have been large gainers through receiving their industrial refugees were on a nearly similar scale. In the 17th century, three or four hundred thousand Protestants perished in prison and the galleys for their attempts to escape or on the scaffold, and an equal number emigrated. Mr. Smiles, in his admirable book on the Huguenots, has traced the influence of these and of the Flemish emigrants on England, and shows clearly that she owes to them almost all her industrial arts and very much of the most valuable life-blood of her modern race. There has been another emigration from France of not unequal magnitude, but followed by very different results, namely that of the Revolution in 1789. It is most instructive to contrast the effects of the two. The Protestant emigrants were able men, and have profoundly influenced for good both our breed and our history. On the other hand, the political refugees had but poor average stamina, and have left scarcely any traces behind them. It is very remarkable how large a proportion of the eminent men of all countries bear foreign names, and are the children of political refugees, men well qualified to introduce a valuable strain of blood. We cannot fail to reflect on the glorious destiny of a country that should maintain, during many generations, the policy of attracting eminently desirable refugees, but not others, and of encouraging their settlement and the naturalization of their children. No nation has parted with more immigrants than England, but whether she has hitherto been on the whole a gainer or a loser by the practice, I am not sure. No doubt, she has lost a very large number of families of sterling worth, especially of labourers and artisans, but as a rule, the very ablest men are strongly disinclined to emigrate. They feel that their fortune is assured at home, and unless their spirit of adventure is overwhelmingly strong, they prefer to live in the high intellectual and moral atmosphere of the more intelligent circles of English society to a self-banishment among people of altogether lower grades of mind and interests. England has certainly got rid of a great deal of refuse through means of emigration. She has found an outlet for men of adventurous and bohemian natures who are excellently adapted for colonising a new country, but are not wanted in old civilisations, and she has also been disembarrassed of a vast number of turbulent radicals and the like men who are decidedly able, but by no means eminent, and whose zeal, self-confidence, and irreverence far outbalance their other qualities. The rapid rise of new colonies and the decay of old civilizations is, I believe, mainly due to their respective social agencies, which in the one case promote, and in the other case retard, the marriages of the most suitable breeds. In a young colony, a strong arm and an enterprising brain are the most appropriate fortune for a marrying man, and again, as women are few, the inferior males are seldom likely to marry. In an old civilization, the agencies are more complex. Among the active, ambitious classes, none but the inheritors of fortune are likely to marry young. There is especially a run against men of classes, upper C, upper D, and upper E, those, I mean, whose future fortune is not assured except through a good deal of self-denial and effort. It is almost impossible that they should succeed well and rise high in society if they hamper themselves with a wife in their early manhood. Men of classes upper F and upper G are more independent, but they are not nearly as so numerous, and therefore their breed, though intrinsically of more worth than upper E or upper D, has much less effect on the standard of the nation at large. 
but even if men of classes upper f and upper g marry young and ultimately make fortunes and achieve peerages or high social position they become infected with the ambition current in all old civilizations of founding families thence result the evils i have already described in speaking of the marriages of eldest sons with heiresses and of the suppression of the marriages of the younger sons again there is a constant tendency of the best men in the country to settle in the great cities where marriages are less prolific and children are less likely to live owing to these several causes there is a steady check in an old civilization upon the fertility of the abler classes the improvident and unambitious are those who chiefly keep up the breed so the race gradually deteriorates becoming in each successive generation less fitted for a high civilization although it retains the external appearances of one until the time comes when the whole political and social fabric caves in and a greater or less relapse to barbarism takes place during the reign of which the race is perhaps able to recover its tone the best form of civilization in respect to the improvement of the race would be one in which society was not costly where incomes were chiefly derived from professional sources and not much through inheritance where every lad had a chance of showing his abilities and if highly gifted was enabled to achieve a first-class education and entrance into professional life by the liberal help of the exhibitions and scholarships which he had gained in his early youth where marriage was held in as high honour as in ancient jewish times where the pride of race was encouraged of course i do not refer to the nonsensical sentiment of the present day that goes under that name where the weak could find a welcome and a refuge in celibate monasteries or sisterhoods and lastly where the better sort of emigrants and refugees from other lands were invited and welcomed and their descendants naturalized End of chapter 21